If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Zach, and I'm proud to serve as one of the pastors here at Covenant. Uh, a quick um, note of detail before we get to the sermon. After the sermon, there's going to be one song and then one final scripture reading. After that, there will be no benediction, no music, and so you're encouraged to uh, feel free to stay in the sanctuary to pray and reflect or to go, um, but the only request is that you remain silent and maintain the sanctity of the space of reflection and prayer. Uh, those of you online, that same deal, there's not going to be the, the music um, outro like normal, and you're encouraged if you have the space and time to take uh, some moments of reflection and prayer after the service. So with that, uh, let's continue in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, and we'll pick up in verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. He said, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, he has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. <clears throat> Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we're gathered on this Good Friday evening. This is a space of remembrance. Jesus, we remember your sacrifice. We remember in spirits of grief and spirits of gratitude. Father, let this part of the gospel message wash over us afresh this evening. Holy Spirit, open our hearts to hear the word of God and be transformed. Jesus, it is in your powerful, beautiful name that we pray. Amen. So the English language has a word and that word is liminal. Liminal. Have you heard it? Liminal means relating to a transitional stage in a process. I'll say it again. Liminal means relating to a transitional stage, going from one place to another, in a process. A, a step amidst a bigger whole. So back in 2015, uh, I got a text from my best friend Dave Hiley one day, and his text message said something very foolish, which was, 
dude, we should run an Ironman triathlon. <laughs> to which I promptly replied, no way, Jose. That is a dumb idea. Uh, but he pursued me day after day. Dude, we got to do this race. It's going to be epic. And I think by the end of the week, he knew he had me. He knew all that was required was to close me with a phone call. So he called me, and with regret and trepidation, I answered his call. And he said, let's do an Ironman. And I said, fine. I will run an Ironman race with you, David. And he said, okay, great. I knew you were going to agree, so I already did some research. I picked out the race we're going to run. They have these races all over the world. He said, we're going to not run the one in the woodlands that's, you know, in our own backyard. We're going to go to Boulder, Colorado to run this race. Now, I knew that was a bad idea. I didn't know just how bad of an idea that was, nor did David, because us Texas boys have no concept of elevation and elevation change and how that impacts the body during exercise. Uh, his logic was what we saw as flawless at the time, and he said, look, if we're going to be traveling that far of a distance, I want the scenery to look nice. <laughs> kind of makes sense. didn't make sense. Um, so I said, okay, fine. Boulder, Colorado, we're doing this thing. Let's just do the whole thing. Now, for those of you who need a refresher on the, what an Ironman contains, it's three parts. First a swim, then a bike ride, then a run. The swim is 2.4 miles. If you're like me, I didn't know that a human being could swim 2.4 miles in a row. They can, actually. It's probably the easiest part of the whole race. Uh, then it's followed by a bike ride of 112 miles. And thank goodness, all you have to do after that is run a marathon. It's nothing. So we trained for seven months. We got to race day. We got through the swim and were less than overjoyed to realize that that was less than 2% of the total mileage to cover for the day, and we hopped on our bikes. And so we're riding, and the way the course was set up, the first um, 40 miles was one loop, and you complete this 40-mile loop two times for a total of 80 miles. Very good. You're awake. And so uh, the first 40 miles we knew going into the race consisted of most of the hill, mountain climbs in the whole race. Most of the elevation change was contained in this loop. And so uh, after completing the second loop, I was feeling pretty good. Most of the elevation change is behind me. Over two-thirds of the bike distance is behind me. And the nice thing about these hills, these mountains, is, yeah, you got to climb up to the top, but you can see the top, and once you get there, you get a free coast down the hill on the other side. So it really wasn't that bad. And so here we are. We've finished the loop for the second time. Take a turn onto the last leg of the journey, a final 32 miles. 
And there was one hill in this 32 miles. One measly hill. And we didn't anticipate this. We read the chart totally wrong. But this hill was a beast. Okay, this hill made the other hills, uh, made this hill look like a mountain and the other hills look like a little, you know, grassy knoll. And so I'm climbing up this mountainous hill incline, so steep, and I'm pedaling and I'm pedaling. My muscles begin to burn. My oxygen is running out. And I'm going, I finally, I'm going so slowly up this hill because I'm just pushing the pedals as hard as I can, standing up to get all my weight under each step, each pedal. And I'm going so slowly. You ever seen someone who's going so slowly that it's like they're about to fall over at any point, right? And I'm just one pedal in front of the other, my way up this mountain, and I'm about to fall over. But I could see the top. And so I kept going, and somehow, some way, God's sustenance, I make it to the top of this mountain. And I was devastated. No, it wasn't a false summit, it was the top. But there was no downhill on the other side. This was a plateau. And so I go for another half mile, three-tenths of a mile, and we take a, a right turn. And this right turn turns directly into a ferociously powerful headwind. If you're a biker, you know that a headwind is way worse than a hill, and I'll tell you why. A headwind is invisible, and you cannot predict the end. On a hill, you see what you're attacking, you can get angry at it, you can frown at it, and you see the top, and you know there's a downhill, or you hope at least a flat area, on the other side, but with a headwind, who knows? And so I'm going for miles into this headwind. And again, I feel my muscles burning. My oxygen began to run out. And I had to stop. And so I pull off to the side, I get off my bike, and I lean it against the pole. And I'm walking around, just trying to breathe. And I prayed, God, I need something. I, I can't do this. I need something. And in that moment, God reminded me that I had an electrolyte capsule in my biker's pouch. And let me tell you, I had used those puppies before, and they are nice, and they provide a lot of energy. And so I began to even feel energized from this capsule before I've even taken it. And I actually kind of jog over to my bike, and I notice my bike is laying on the ground. And I thought, huh, I thought I left that up on the pole. And this headwind that really was out to get me had blown my bike over, and I get up to my bike, 
as I watch the last of my water pour out of my bottle. And I have nothing with which to swallow this capsule and nothing with which to sustain me, quench my thirst as I continue on this race. And it was in that moment that my present sufferings were so great that I was this close to giving up. I literally, like 95 miles into this bike ride, eight months of training, thousands of dollars, thought, I don't think I can go another foot. But I had a liminal mind. And I remembered this is just a transition stage in a process. And I'm headed towards the ultimate goal of finishing this race. So I got back on my bike and I put one pedal in front of the other and I finished the race. In this section of Luke 23, we meet three main characters and we find each of them hung on a cross. Two criminals and Jesus. So who are these men? Well, the scripture just refers to them as criminals and doesn't give us any other details. So what do we know historically that can give us some context about who these men are? Well, we know historically in Rome that this type of capital punishment was primarily reserved for traitors, captive armies, people who had been trying to kill you, slaves who had rebelled against their masters and murdered their masters, and the worst of the worst criminals. So if you made it to a cross, you are really bad. These criminals are really bad men. Marcus Tullius Cicero, a Roman statesman, lawyer, scholar, he died in 43 BC, about 75 years before Luke chapter 23. He described crucifixion in this way. Crucifixion is a most cruel and disgusting punishment. He suggested that the very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. The vile nature of crucifixion is such that a Roman citizen should never have to fear encountering it in their own body, nor should they even have to see it, hear about it, or think about it. Elsewhere, he says, it is a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is a wickedness. To put him to death is almost parricide. What shall I say of crucifying him? So guilty in action cannot by any possibility be adequately expressed by any name bad enough for it. The whole of the Latin language in Cicero's mind doesn't contain a word 
that can adequately express the evil nature, the cruelty of crucifying a Roman citizen. And I know that we all know crucifixion is bad, but we've got to get into it. Jesus went through it so we can talk about it. What's so bad about crucifixion? Excruciating physical pain and absolute humiliation. Most depictions of Jesus on the cross show him wearing a loincloth. And we don't know, maybe he wore one. There's nothing in the scripture that says that. But we do know that historically in the Roman Empire, if someone was crucified, they were first stripped completely naked. Totally exposed. Totally shamed. While naked, the victim was then scourged. Jesus was scourged with a cat of nine tails. This was purposed so that the victim would lose so much blood that they would go into shock. This before they were even nailed to a cross. Jesus lost so much blood that he couldn't even carry his own cross. They had to get Simon of Cyrene to carry it for him. Still naked, the victim is forced to carry their cross from the place of their scourging to the place of their execution. Oftentimes, most oftentimes, the upright beam was in a permanent place and they were carrying just the cross beam, weighing at least 100 pounds. When they would arrive, still naked. They would be nailed to the crossbeam on the ground. In Luke 23, it says that Jesus was nailed through his hands. The Greek word there actually means lower arm, anything below the elbow. And so we look historically at the Roman Empire and their practice of crucifixion. The most common place was just above the wrist. I want you to take your index finger and your thumb and your other forearm. Place them on the ed- outsides of your wrist and you feel the bones. Then turn your wrist so that your index finger is in the soft spot between those bones. You feel it? Then I want you to take your thumb and place it on the open side of your wrist. What do you feel? It's not just muscle. There's ligaments tendons, veins. And then I want you to squeeze. Press your thumb into your wrist. It's really uncomfortable. 
after being nailed. Jesus and the two criminals were then lifted up and attached to the upright beam. And that's when their, their feet were nailed as well. In this position, a crucifix was stretched to the point of not being able to breathe unless they could pull up just a little bit to catch a breath and back down. They hung there until their blood oxygen ratio sunk so low until it dropped below a survivable level. And so through this incredible suffering and these three men, we see two responses. The first criminal, he's suffering. What does he do? I have to imagine that his shouts were a mixture of hateful mocking and desperate pleas for help. If you're really the Messiah, save yourself and get me down from here. Fixated on the sufferings of his present time. He ignored completely the fact that this man could save his soul because he was desperate to end the pain to his body. Second criminal. Suffering. What does he do? He had a liminal mind. He knew this is a transitional step in something greater. And gasping for breath, he remembers some time in his life where he heard that there's life after death and Jesus is the way. And he believed. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knew that his suffering wasn't the end-all, be-all. He knew there was something greater. Now Jesus, precious Jesus, suffering. What did he do? Did he use his almighty power to end his torture? No. Jesus had a liminal mind. He knew he was going through a transition. He knew he was on a mission and he finished. 
for you and for me. And he turned and said to the second criminal, the worst of the worst, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. As I reflected on this passage, something new struck me. I asked myself the question, okay, I know Jesus had to die for my sin. I know it was prophesied that it would be on a cross. But why did he have to hang there so long? Because clearly he died sooner than what was common for victims of crucifixion. Later in 23, it says that he commits his spirit to his father and he dies. And then later a soldier comes out to stab him because the soldiers can't go home until the crucifixes are dead. And he's shocked to find that Jesus has already passed. So if that's the case, why did he have to hang there for so long? Who are we to know the mind of God? But we can make two observations from the text. The first observation is that maybe he extended his agony just so long as there was a chance that one of the criminals would repent and has to be saved. Even in his suffering, he did not think of himself. Observation number two. In verse 44, it says that from that moment, when the criminal believed, until the moment that Jesus died, the whole land was dark for three hours. Brothers and sisters, what does it mean for us to have liminal minds? I have two challenges. The first is this. In life, you will encounter suffering. If you haven't yet, you just haven't lived long enough. In life, you will encounter suffering. And when you encounter that suffering, remember that you are living in a transitional Stage a small step in a greater process. Say along with Paul that I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The worst thing you could imagine happening to you on this earth is not even worth mentioning in the same breath 
as the wonder and glory of being in the presence of God for all of eternity. You are in a transition. And the end is worth it. Suffering is so that God would receive glory. We know it from the man born blind. They said, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither, but rather he was born blind that God might be glorified in his healing. Your suffering is for a purpose, and you are a passenger, a traveler, an alien in a transitional phase of something greater. The second challenge is this. To have a liminal mind for the next 36 hours. I ask you, what better way could you spend the next 36 hours as you prepare to celebrate Sunday morning than to spend one, two, three, all 36 hours in prayer, in fasting, in grieving, in remembrance? meditation on Luke 23, spending your hours mourning the loss of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the King, the Son of God. Died. Let's pray. There's not much to say. But we remember and we're so thankful. Jesus, we're so thankful. you have saved the world.